I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, the science behind habituation. Why does it feel so great when we take a break or spontaneously do something totally different? So habituation is our tendency to respond less and less to things that are constant uh, or things that change very, very, very gradually. So things around us, we stop seeing, we stop having an emotional response to them. And what will we most regret? Not sticking with what makes us most comfortable or grabbing an opportunity to switch things up. You want more firsts. So for example, instead of going on a two-week vacation, you might go on a few mini vacations. So you get more of those firsts. If you break up the enjoyable experiences, you will dishabituate more and habituate less and therefore enjoy the whole experience. The science and benefits of breaking habits, re-sparkling, and why variety truly is the spice of life. That's coming up on Life Examined. How often have you heard someone say, it's good to mix it up? Turns out, researchers of habituation say there's some truth in that statement. Doing the same routine over and over again shows consistency and dedication. But we all know that taking a day off from work or school, for example, or having a break from an athletic or intellectual challenge makes life way more enjoyable. And think about it. If you're in a relationship, when are you happiest? when you've been together all day, or when you greet each other after you've been apart for a bit. While good habits and practices are important, emotionally we disconnect when we habituate. Gradually, as the novelty wears off, we don't process those habits in the same way, and they lose their sparkle. And over time, doing the same thing without an emotional connection will become less rewarding and significantly less productive. In the book, Look Again, The Power of Noticing What Was Always There, co-author Tali Sherritt talks about why and how we stop noticing and shows why diversifying our lives can help us re-sparkle and lead to greater fulfillment and happiness. Tali Sherritt is a neuroscientist and professor of cognitive neuroscience at MIT and the University College London. Welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. This is a subject I, I, I'm so glad you've explored, and I, I've thought about it so personally because it, it feels like one of the great almost deficiencies of human psychology or one of the roadblocks to happiness is this notion of habituation. Let's just define that term for those mm-hmm. that, that are unfamiliar with it. Like what, what is habituation in the way that you use it in this book? Right. So habituation is our tendency to respond less and less to things that are constant uh, or things that change very, very, very gradually. And it's really a basic feature of our brain that governs every neuron in it. Um, And so it's the same principle um, by which, for example, you walk into a room filled with smoke and at first you really kind of smell the smoke very intensely. But slowly, slowly, you kind of don't notice it. After 20 minutes, you don't, you can't smell it at all, Hmm. right? Or you jump into a pool, it's really cold, but very quickly, you kind of get used to it because your brain is stopped, doesn't respond anymore. And so just as we get used to the smell of tobacco or to the cold water, we also get used to the good and bad stuff in life, Hmm. to a new love, to but also to a breakup, to winning the lottery, but also going bankrupt, to the smell of the ocean, but also to pollution. So things around us that are constant, that don't change, we stop seeing, we stop having an emotional response to them. Mm. Can you talk about, from, from an evolutionary perspective or from a neuroscientific perspective, 
why why humans habituate so well, even though I think sometimes we wish we wouldn't. But what's your understanding of how, how we ended up with this kind of part of our brain that's always doing this? Yeah, so our brain responds to what's new, right? Um, and the reason it does that, because if something has been around us for a while and it hasn't really killed us, um, it's probably not that important. And we should save our resources, our brain resources for anything new that about is about to happen that will come our way. Right. So it makes evolutionary sense for us to survive to filter out background noise. Right. And when I say background nose, I don't mean just sound. I mean, anything that's been in the background, but doesn't seem to, you know, be important anymore. So we're ready for what's coming next. Um, now, on kind of more um, emotional level, you know, if let's think you got your first job and if you think about your first job, um, you know, you probably were quite happy about your first job and quite excited. But to ensure that you're motivated, um, you don't want to be happy with an entry level job for the rest of your life, right? Mm. In some sense, it makes, you know, it's good that those things don't cause us as much excitement and as much joy. So then we're really motivated to progress, to try and get ahead to get to the next thing. But on the other hand, it also means that we're not really truly satisfied, right? Um, and we're always kind of looking for the next thing, the next thing. And that, that could be uh, something that, it, that could hold us back emotionally. Um, then another kind of um, adaptive feature of habituation is the fact that we tend to adapt to the bad things that happen in life. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a breakup or um, you have, you were laid off or even an injury, at first, when these things happen, we feel really bad about them and they really kind of capture our attention. But most people, after a while, those things don't kind of have so much impact on us. And that's right. It's good. It's good that that happens because then we could move on with our lives. Um, and in fact, what you see that people that have depression, clinical depression, they tend to habituate to the negative things way slower than people who are um, don't have depression symptoms. There's a really cool study that was conducted at the University of Miami by Professor Aaron Heller. What he did is um, he had students um, in his course and they had a big exam and they got their grades. And he asked them to um, rate how they were feeling every 45 minutes using an app for the whole day. And what he found was and when people got a bad grade, they were feeling pretty bad and it makes sense. And it didn't really matter if you had a history of depression or you didn't, everyone felt pretty bad. But what happened is those individuals without a uh, history of depression or other mental health uh, problems, slowly, slowly, they started feeling better. And within a few hours, it was all forgotten. Now, people with a history of depression, they also felt better, but it took them much longer, right? Um, they were kind of ruminating over this negative event, the mm. bad grade, and it was really tough for them to let go of these negative emotions and move on. 
Yeah, and rumination, I know, is, is something you spend quite a bit of time talking about. And, and I appreciate the way you've laid out really well there, just just why this is an important function of, of how we adapt, how we survive in good ways and challenging ways. And so I, I want to stay with this notion, though, of on the positive side of pleasure mm-hmm. or happiness, because mm-hmm. um, I know this is what of course, we all want. We're all trying to get a little bit happier in our lives. And um, there was a really, I think, a very powerful line that you quote, which is that pleasure results from incomplete and intermittent satisfaction of desires. I could read that line like five times, as I did in the book. I found it to be very provocative. But can you explore where that comes from and how that fits into our conversation right now? Yeah, so that is um, a quote from Tiber Stikowski, um, who's an economist. And the idea is that to en- to really enjoy something, you need to kind of get away from it for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to kind of explain this, maybe I'll, I'll tell you about um, a very simple experiment that was done. So in this very simple experiment, there were two groups. Um, and they were given mac and cheese to eat for lunch. One group was given mac and cheese to eat for lunch every single day um, for two weeks. The other group was given uh, mac and cheese to, to eat, but only once a week, right? And so the group that was given mac and cheese to eat every day, the first day, they loved it. They really enjoyed it. The second day, they still loved it. The first day, third day, a little bit less. The fourth day, a little bit less, mm. right? The fifth day, they couldn't stand it anymore. So this is very intuitive, right? Um, if we eat the same thing over and over and over, even if it's our favorite food, after a while, we, we can't really um, enjoy it as much. Um, and so mac and cheese is, is kind of a silly little example, but this is true, I think, for most things in life. Um, Another kind of maybe an example, another study that, that showed this was a study where they um, asked people first to predict what would they enjoy more, to listen to a song that they really like from beginning to end, right, no interruptions, or to listen to the same song, but with interruptions, little breaks in between. So when you ask people this question, turns out 99% of the people say, they don't want to break, right? It's very intuitive. I want to listen to the song from beginning to end. However, when they actually did the experiment and had one group listen from beginning to end, no interruption, and the other group had breaks, counterintuitively, those that had breaks enjoyed it more. And so why is it same as the mac and cheese, same as everything else, which is the song brings you a lot of joy, but over time you habituate, right? You feel less and less joy from the song or the mac and cheese. But if you have a break, you dishabituate. And then when you come back to the song, the joy bounces back up. Um, and those that had breaks in the song were willing to pay twice as much to listen to the music in concert. Um, another kind of nice um, piece of data that shows this is um, related to vacations. Mm. So this is actually, um, Something that that I did, I worked with a big um, company, uh, tourism company, and they wanted to know what makes people happiest on vacation and when they're happy and why. So we did some surveys, we went out to the resorts and we interviewed people. And we found a few things that were quite interesting. 
The first thing was that it turns out that the holiday makers were happiest 43 hours after arriving at the resort.、Mm. So, why 43? 43 allowed them some time to、uh, settle, unpack, and so on. And at that point, they really can concentrate on fun and they really had, you know, greatly enjoyed the time a lot. From that time on, from that peak, happiness started going down and down and down and down, right? The joy just went dwindling down. Now, Because of habituation. And it's not that they, by the end of the two week vacation, they were not feeling joy and they weren't happy. They were, but less and less so, right? Because、mm. of the fact that they just got used to everything around them. And the other interesting thing that we found is that when we asked them, what was the, the most fun bit in the whole vacation? What did you enjoy the most? The word that they used more than any other word was first. They、mm. said, the first view of the ocean, the first cocktail, the first dip in the pool. First, were, were the most enjoyable.、Um, and so, the way to think about it is you want more firsts, right?、Mm. And how do you create more firsts? Is you break up the、um, joyful experiences into bits. So, for example, instead of going on a two week vacation, you might go on a few mini vacations, right? So, you get more of those firsts. Um, you habituate only over a few days and not over two weeks. Of course, there's a lot of other things to consider. You know, you, you may be traveling far for your, for your vacation.、Um, so you want, may want to think about that. Maybe take those too many vacations closer to home rather than one、uh, long one far away.、Mm. Um, but the principle here is always the same. If you break up the enjoyable experiences, you will dishabituate. Right, more and habituate less, and therefore enjoy the whole experience.、Mm. It's interesting how that can be applied to, you know, not just、uh, things we enjoy, hobbies or travel, but I think, but relationships too. This is what's, what's so fascinating.、Um, th- th- there's, a, there's a quote of Oscar Wilde, who, of course, has thousands of great quotes, but、um, you write that, you quote him as, The very essence of romance is uncertainty. And I, I, I love that. I mean, I think it speaks, I think, tangentially to what you're saying, which is that, you know, we all have maybe been there with a partner where things start to feel a little old and stale. And the idea is that actually we're trying to get back to the feeling of those firsts or the uncertainty.、Um, can, can you kind of bring in the aspect of relationships here? Because I think that's a really important part. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, Oscar Wilde and his importance of being earnest is full of these wonderful um, quotes. Um, and so, we quote him as well as Esther Perel, who、um, obviously is an expert on relationships. And she talks about、um, the fact that she did some surveys or interviews, and she found that there are two circumstances in which people felt most attracted to their、uh, mates. And that was A, when they went away and came back, right? So they were on you know, a business trip and then they came back, so they haven't seen their partner for a while.、Um, and the second was when they saw the partner in a situation that was novel, that was unusual. For example,、um, their partner was on stage or their partner was talking to some strangers in a party. And in both of these cases,、um, the reason that They felt more attracted is because it was out of the ordinary, right?、Um, and she talks a lot about the fact that、um, familiarity really is 
something that can butt head with attraction. Mm. Um, and of course, we, we want familiarity. We want um, experiences that we share together. We want a history and all of that is important. But at the same time, um, people also want to be able to see things anew, to see things fresh. Um, I think part of it is related to the fact that we want to feel like we're learning. And when we feel like we're learning, that really brings us joy. And I mean, I think that maybe sound, sounds like, oh, how is that related to relationships? But I think it is. And we can talk about in a second why learning brings us joy and how important learning is. But I think it is related to relationships um, as well, because you are learning from your partner, right? You're learning from the interaction. But if the interaction is the same again and again and again and again, and you think that you know everything about your partner, there's nothing to learn. Mm. Of course, you never really know everything about your partner. That's just an illusion. Um, and it's not, not a helpful illusion, I don't think. But turning to learning, um, there's a lot of really interesting studies showing that if people have a choice, they always prefer the situation where they can learn. Even if... Um, it costs them money. There's one experiment, well, I'll tell you about two. One experiment that was conducted by Bastian Blaine and Rob Rutledge, both neuroscientists, um, they showed that people felt the, the most happiness when they learned something new about a game and they felt more happy at that point than when they won some money. Mm. So when they got money, they were happy, but they weren't as happy when they learned something new. And in another study that was conducted in Princeton, um, participants were able to choose between two games. One game, they knew everything. There was nothing to learn, but that meant they could do really well and gain a lot of money. And the other game, um, there was uncertainty, right? They had to figure things out. They had to gain knowledge. Um, and they could choose between those games and they tended to choose a game where there was high uncertainty and they had to learn to kind of fill in those gaps of knowledge. So this is where we could begin to think about, say, in relationships, how to apply maybe the notion of, of taking breaks. I mean, this is something that Esther Perel talked a lot about, which is mm -hmm. that maybe we have to kind of get rid of the notion that we need to be attached to the hip all the time and that separation could be a very healthy thing. Is that, is that something you could go a little bit further into? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and those separations, you know, it doesn't have to be weeks at a time. It could also be just a weekend. It could also be just an evening. But if you do that, then you are able to uh, see things afresh. Um, and also having your own experiences makes you, you know, um, different in the eyes of your partner. And I think those breaks from our daily lives are important not only for our relationships, but to be able to see our uh, circumstances, whether it is the home that we're living in, other relationships with our children, right, jobs and so on in, with fresh eyes. Mm. Um, there's a few nice quotes. In fact, I'll actually um, tell you about this quote, which is, and I'm going to paraphrase from Jodie Foster. I was, I was listening to um, her talking. It was on a podcast. And she was uh, telling about how she was away to film uh, a movie in a really lovely location, you know, probably some kind of tropical location. But after, you know, a few weeks in this tropical location, she got kind of bored and fed up with all this like tropical food and all of that. And when she finally got back home, her home and her daily kind of routines seemed so wonderful, right? Mm. She was saying, oh, 
avocados. Avocados seemed so great. Something that she used to eat every day, right? Sushi seemed so great. Going to the gym seemed so wonderful. Um, so if you go away and then you come back, the kind of daily things that you never think about, that you never notice, suddenly they resparkle. And in fact, in the book, we actually uh, quote Julia Roberts, and she talks about resparkling and how mm. um, she has her daily routine where she takes her kids to school and then she has lunch with her husband and so on. Um, but if she had done that every single day, every single week for all of her life, she would probably just get bored with it. Um, but the fact that she goes away you know, for work and comes back. Every time she comes back, it looks, it feels like the whole thing has resparkled, right? Like mm. pixie dust on top. But what do you do in cases where you can't get away and and you're in these routines and, you know, there's also, you know, we, we see so much interesting counter evidence on this show about stuff too, like the, the importance of routine, the importance of habit mm -hmm. and how those are so healthy in life. And of course, you know, what you're saying is those can be overdone too, but I, I wonder if there's also approaches that allow one to re-engage with the magic of everyday life if you can't leave for a week or a night. Because um, I, I find that's like the big challenge is we all have to wake up and go back to the thing we do, you know? And yeah. so how would you answer that? Yeah. Um, so uh, there's two kind of answers to that. One um, is something that actually Lori Santos talks about. Mm. Um, and she says, you know, just close your eyes and imagine your life without all those things. Imagine your life without your family, without your spouse, without your job, without your house, whatever it is, really try to kind of imagine it with vividness and details. And when you do that, it's it's a feeling of, you know, it's a very terrible feeling. And then um, once you open your eyes again and see what you have, there's kind of a gratefulness for it. Um, and I think she's right. We often, I don't know, I, I have this experience if you have kind of um, a dream, a really bad dream about, um, losing you know a member of the family or something like that and then you wake up and you know everyone's there and there's a great um gratefulness for that so imagination can also be a tool um but another way i i kind of mentioned this anecdote where doing uh covid i i had covid and so i had um i went down to the basement for a few days so that my family members won't catch it um and first of all, quite surprisingly, being in the basement <laughs> was not that bad. It felt, you know, also this kind of novel experience. Um, but more interesting than that, once I recovered and I went back upstairs to just, you know, regular life, again, life seemed a little bit better, you know, a little bit more sparkly than it did before. So um, even these changes that sound a little bit kind of, not not like huge changes like going into the basement for a while or um, closing your eyes can have um, a positive impact. Mm. Um, now, going just back to your point about habits, like most things when it comes to behavior and it comes to the mind, we shouldn't take a principle as that is what we need to do at all times, right? It really matters about what is it that we're trying to achieve, right? Habits are very important and very helpful in many things. For example, um, on, on one hand, to um, if you're trying to lose weight and so on, if you have a habit of going to the gym every morning, and so that helps you stick, right, with that good behavior. Um, so it's kind of important to, to consider there's good things to habits, but there's also a huge um, advantage to have variety 
as well, right? And and you need to think about what is it that you're trying to maximize? What's your goal? And for that, you can have different behaviors um, be more better for that for that goal. So it's not, you know, the point of, of the book is not, ooh, we, we can't have habits. Habits are not good. That's, that's not the point. But we're kind of uh, trying to show the... Um, advantages and disadvantages um, of making changes um, on one hand and just, you know, having our routines and things constant on the other. Right. Do you have any idea of kind of what's happening inside our brains when we re-sparkle, which is that great, great word you're using? <laughs> like what, 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 what is, what's lighting up in there that we love so much, right? This is the thing we tend to seek. Yeah. So I think it's a few things. I think it may begin with attention. Mm. Um, when things are not changing around us, we don't attend to them. And so we don't perceive them. We don't think about them, right? And if we're not attending, not perceiving, not thinking, they're not going to elicit an emotional response as much. Um, that's true, by the way, for the positive things. It's also true for the negative things in life. Um, just as we habituate to the positive, we also habituate to some negative things around us. These can be on societal level or in our personal life. So it could be uh, racism around us, sexism, discrimination, just cracks in our relationships. If those things are constant or just inefficiencies work, mm. um, we may not attend to them, not perceive them and therefore not have a reaction to them. And if we don't have a reaction to them, we don't try to change them. So going back to your questions of what, what happens, I think it is that once things are new, they are processed. Like, you know, really just the visual system processing, the auditory system processing, right? We are attending and that information then elicits an emotional reaction. Mm. Um, so we have the reward system in the brain that may be activated. Um, but if you don't see something, um, then it's not going to have any impact, right? Yeah. And this gets to something that you wrote about, and, and you may have reflected on a minute ago there, which was that the one thing that seems to not get old is learning, which I find so fascinating. Mm. And you quote, I think it's Bill Gates and others that this, that are voracious readers, essentially. And to me, you know, reading is the one way to stay engaged. And it's funny because, mm -hmm. like, people ask me often, like, what do I love about my job? And even though I sometimes think, oh, I'm just having to do this show every week, you know, it's the same container every week. But what changes is the is the content and the ideas and the material and that that's why I keep doing it. It's learning. That's pretty much it. And I think that's something I really realized reading your book. Um, and I mean, maybe you could speak to that a little bit more. Um, you talk about how you know when we fall into ruts, it's often when we're not learning. We just feel stuck. Yeah. So I mentioned before about these studies showing that um, people really enjoy the ability to learn. Um, and they choose to do so if they can. And, and you're asking about the brain. So there is the study that I mentioned earlier where they showed that people um, said that they were happiest when they learned something rather than just getting money, for example. And also they did see, uh, they looked at people's brains, they imaged their brain while they were doing this, and they found that the uh, there's reward signals in the brain it's a region called the nucleus accumbens was more active when people learned versus when, for example, they received a sum of money. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that we talk about is 
how this may be related to the midlife crisis. Yes, exactly. So um, there's lots of data showing that happiness follows um, a U-shape. So it's relatively higher in teenagers and kids. It goes down, 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 reaches rock bottom in your midlife. Um, but then good news is actually it starts going up again. Yeah, like mid-40s, um, I remember. It's, it's in that ballpark where it bottoms out. Right, and yeah. it's a little bit different from country to sure. country. We're not quite sure why, but in some places more 40s, the others right. closer to 50s. I'm happy so to be but marching yeah, just into it. I'll, that'll be me in the next four years. So I'm looking forward to it. Anyway, continue, <laughs> continue on. <laughs> Um, and, um, and so I, you know, we think that maybe one reason for this, uh, midlife, um, depression, if you will, is because that's really the time that things don't really change as much, right? Hmm. Um, maybe you've got to some level at, at your job, maybe it's a high level, maybe it's something, it's the place that you wanted to get to for a long time, but at that point you're kind of there. Um, so in, in kind of in going up, when you start as a junior and you're kind of going up and up and up, there's a lot of learning, right? You're learning, you're meeting people, you're honing your skills. And then at, at some point at midlife, it's just about more routine, yeah. doing the same thing again and again and again. And also in our personal life, in our family life, it's, you know, you get up in the morning, take the kids to school, go to work, and it's kind of over again, same thing. And not so much earlier in your life because things change quite a bit and, and so do you when you grow um and then and then surprisingly also once people retire um they are facing kind of an uh, an open um future where they need to decide what to do and while this can be scary on one hand it also means that we need to figure out new things we need to figure out how are we living our life? What are we going to do? A lot of people do start taking like courses and, and, and things like that, or maybe they travel. Um, but in any case, it requires adjustment. Hmm. And the interesting thing, I think, is that even if those adjustments are difficult, the challenge gives us a sense of agency, of efficacy, which actually can lead to um, more of like a higher sense of well-being than just doing the same thing over and over and over. Mm -hmm. So a challenge is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. I, I, I so kind of relate, as I think so many would, to this idea, especially those that are listening and feel like they, they kind of are in that mid-career process. I, I, I talked about this with a friend of mine, and it was like, it seemed like there were two different modalities of thinking. There was the process of getting... And then when you got there, the process of preserving. And those felt mm -hmm. like such mm -hmm. different places to be mm -hmm. in. I think for most of my life, I was yeah. just like starving and hungry, say, to get a show like this or something. And, and, I, and I find that I, you know, now it's, it's, it's a much different way of being. And, um, and I have to fight to continue mm -hmm. to bring the curiosity and the novelty that you talk about. So I, I guess I just want to reiterate it. I think this is, I think it, it feels very true to me. Yeah, and I think that also relates to another thing, which is whether your focus is on progress and on gain. And when I say gain, I don't necessarily mean just monetary gain hmm. um, versus whether your focus is on, you said preserving. And I think when the focus is on preserving, it's actually on not losing, mm. right? It's not losing what, I, what we have. And this kind of, this relates actually to some work, not in this book, but in my previous book, um, where I talk a lot about the fact that 
there's this kind of relationship between expecting good things and action. So a lot, you know, in life to get the good stuff, whether it's uh, even like water um, or it is a promotion or it's love, we usually need to act. We need to do something to get these things. And so there's this relationship in our brain between um, action and and rewards. And mm. on the other hand, to um, avoid bad stuff, to avoid deep waters or untrustworthy people, we often need, not always, but often we need to actually not do anything. Um, and so there's this kind of association in our brain between the expectation of punishment and inaction. Yeah. So when we expect something bad, we're kind of like, we freeze for a second. Of course, we can overcome it. We're sophisticated creatures, but our our initial um, response is inaction. Um, and we have also data that shows that um, people learn more or take or focus more when you tell them something that is expect unexpectedly positive about the future than unexpectedly negative about the future, um, about their own future. And I think all of this kind of works well with, with what you mentioned about how this sense of going forward of like, I'm, I want that, I want to get that thing, I want to get that reward, makes you act mm -hmm. and it enhances motivation. But when you're focused on, I don't want to lose what I have, that causes us inaction. And if you're just joining us, my guest this hour is Tali Sherritt, neuroscientist and co-author of the book, Look Again, The Power of Noticing What Was Always There. And a reminder, you can stay connected to the show and to me. You can find me on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion. Join our Facebook group for Life Examined. We'll be back with part two after this short break. Stay close. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW and my guest, neuroscientist Tali Sherritt. We're discussing the science of habituation. So what about the arguments we've heard often on this show that habits and routines are good for us? They ground us and keep us present. How does re-sparkling fit into that equation? Is there a magic formula or up to each individual? Let's jump back in. One question that I, I keep coming to as we have this conversation is that, and I would put myself in this category, in a sense, I, I feel like I'm always just kind of like addicted constantly to new things. Like I'm home mm. for five days, then I want to leave home and go somewhere mm. else. And then I'm there and I want to go back home again. And then I'm reading one book and then I want to read the next book. Like that to me is also not a very healthy pattern of thinking, which is like always, always on the hunt for novelty, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wonder how you know, you would respond to that because there are people with whom uh, I am joined within that camp. So what would you say? Yeah, so it's a good point, which is, as for everything, there are a lot of individual differences, right? Um, this specific trait is novelty seeking. Mm -hmm. um, and there are people on all on all um, along all the scale, right? The people who are, you know, they really enjoy novelty and they, they need new things. And I think, you know, that is partially, probably, because you habituate faster, perhaps, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's another thing where there is a lot of individual uh, differences. How fast do people habituate? And how fast people habituate then leads to, are they exploring more, mm. right? Or are they stay staying with what they have, which we call exploiting? Um, and... 
Regarding, because I mean, because if you're um, if you habituate quicker, so you're you you know whatever thing you're doing, you're listening to to a record and you're enjoying it a lot, but you habituate fast, and now you want another record or your book. You mentioned you read a book, so you read right. a book, you enjoy it, but you habituate to the story to kind of like the the tone, and now you want another book, um, and so you tend to explore more things. I as I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing unless it is a bad thing. What do I mean? <laughs> sure, like, sure. Is it? Does yeah. it? Um, if it um, then causes some kind of interruption in your daily function, right? If you feel that because of that you don't get things done, yeah, for example, yeah. that could be a problem, right? And then, then we're actually kind of moving more towards. Also, it would sound a little bit more like ADHD, right? Mm-hmm. So ADHD is an attention uh, deficit disorder. Um, but if we're not in the domain where it is means that you can't focus to get things done, whether it's at work or you can't stay, you know, in a relationship in a, in a sense that, um, is good for you, um, then it's a problem. Mm -hmm. But if this happens and it doesn't actually impact negatively on parts of your life, I don't think on its own, it's necessarily a bad thing. No, I, I agree. I, I hear that. And 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 at the same time, another question that that comes up for me is that it, it seems that we we we're trying to hold multiple ideas of a good life, you know, in, in two hands. One is we want novelty, which is you know seeing new things and 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 you know everything that you've talked about and sparkling. But at the other time, I think there's this notion of meaning. Which people will say, you know, I, I'm what I'm most proud of is that I've I've been married for 20 years, and that was not always full of sparkles, but that brought me a huge amount of meaning. Or I've done things that were very difficult, and I didn't like it for stretches, but that was a really important part of my life, which maybe has nothing to do with the idea of sparkling. And mm-hmm. so I, I'm trying to weigh these two things together because I, I think they're both important components of how we think of you know a, a good and rich life. Right. And so, yeah, so, so we talk about what, what is a good life. Um, and it is obviously not just one thing, right? Um, and the free components that we mention is, and, and it's the kind of, the first two are the ones that when you ask people, that's usually the answer that they give you. So when you ask people, what is a good life? The first answer that they usually get is it's a happy laugh. I want to be happy, right? Um, and happiness usually means feeling joy, right? Not mm-hmm. feeling depression, not feeling anxiety on kind of a day-to-day basis. The second answer that people usually give is meaning. I want to feel a sense of purpose. Um, and meaning and happiness don't necessarily have to go hand in hand. Um, and that's okay. And the third thing, which is the one that tends to be overlooked, is variety. So... People who have a more varied life, they have diverse experience. Maybe they lived in different countries. Maybe they um, interact with different kind of people. They do different things. They tend to see their life more so as a good life Mm. versus people who just um, tend to kind of do the same. On average, of course, you know, it could be that for you, this variety is good and for another person, not so much. Um, And as you say, the... um, the best thing is a combination of all three, right? Mm. You want happiness, you want purpose, and you want variety. And I think the interesting, the way that we think about this is similar to how we think about a lot of other things uh, when we try to explain human um, 
choices and, and differences in choices is that different people have different weights on these three things. You know, and by weights, I mean how sign- how important are those things? Mm-hmm. So I think all three things are important, but for different individuals, they may put more emphasis and more weight on one or the other um, of these things. Yeah. But I think the variety is a one that people tend to overlook because, and, and what's interesting is that a lot when in, there's a study um, where people are asked to kind of look back at their life and say, what do they regret? And what they found is that most often the thing that they regret either doing or not doing is something that would have enhanced the variety in their life. Mm. And even if the variety would not necessarily enhance happiness. So I think this is something that I can relate with. You know, I often would choose to do something that will be a little bit different from what I'm doing normally. Even if that new thing, it doesn't necessarily, I don't think it will bring like momentary joy necessarily, right? Mm. Yeah, no, that's a, I think that's very well said. Um, I want to make sure that we also get to the other kind of side of this coin and this is how we can habituate to bad things too. Or mm-hmm. to, and and I, I, I see this a lot, you know, as a therapist where somebody would come in and mostly they'd be in like a really bad relationship, but they would kind of describe it as if it was normal and use phrases mm-hmm. like, ah, but everybody does that. Or like, oh, but every mm-hmm. relationship, you know, it's this kind of normalizing of very, what felt like were unhealthy patterns, essentially. C- can you talk about how we do that because it seems to be around us all the time we all do it all the time in certain ways so i think this kind of normalization of um thing negative things are really you can really see it on social media that maybe you know when first um people started being on social media which is now a long time ago Mm. more than a decade ago i guess um i think if at that moment um you would see the kind of interactions the trolling and, you know, the rudeness that goes on today, name calling, you'd probably be hugely surprised, right? And it will have a huge effect on you. Nowadays, we're just used to it. Mm-hmm. We go online and we're used to the fact that people are being extremely rude, name calling and all of that, uh, as well as just, you know, false information, um, lies and things like that. So that is is something that, and it's funny because like in in life outside of social media, if those things happened, you would have a surprise signal, right? You would be astonished. But when you go on social media, you expect it. And and so if you expect it, it doesn't really have much of a reaction Mm -hmm. at all. And so that is um, true for social media, but then it's also true for a lot of other things, that things that maybe a few years ago would have seemed very unlikely or impossible or terrible in some ways, they kind of either are there for a long time, so we accept them, or sometimes they start small, but then become bigger and bigger and bigger very, very, very gradually. And so we don't really notice that much and we don't react. Um, One study that we did was actually we showed this um, in, in how people habituate to their own dishonesty. We had um, a study where people came into our lab and they played a game. Um, and in this game, they could lie in order to gain money at the expense of another person. 
Now, we didn't tell them to lie, but they could figure out from how the, the kind of task was structured that if they lie, they will gain more money at the expense of another person. And what we found is that at the beginning, they lied by just a little bit, a few cents here and there. And then after a while, they lied more, a few dollars and more and more and more. So as time passed, they lied by larger and larger amounts. And while they were conducting, they're doing this task, we recorded their brain activity in a brain imaging scanner and they could interact with the other person over the Wi-Fi. And what we found is that at the beginning when they lied, there was a strong signal in the amygdala, which is a part of the brain that's important for emotion. So that suggests that when they started at the beginning, when they lied, they felt bad about it, which makes sense because most people say that lying is, is something bad to do and so they feel bad about it. But over time, this negative feeling just habituated. It went away. And as it went away, there was nothing to carve their dishonesty. So they lied by larger and larger and larger amount. So, you know, as we start to slowly wrap up here, what I'm hearing is whether it's we're trying to kind of, you know, re-sparkle the day-to-day or we're trying to remove ourselves from patterns like we need we need some level of separation we need alternate perspectives to kind of to almost serve as like a palate cleanser in a way um do i do i have that right i mean this to me seems like a very major takeaway no matter which way we understand you know the arguments that you're making yeah absolutely because it's hard for us to really know what is good for us or what is good for right. society for our family um, unless we try out different things. Um, even, you know, we talked earlier on about like how habits are really kind of maybe useful for physical activity. You go to the gym every day at a certain time and so on. But even, even in that case, you know, you may want to try an afternoon, an evening uh, workout instead of doing the same workout again and again. You know, instead of running on the treadmill, you want to try and do some cycling. Um and so I think it's similar for what is good for us more generally um, in our life. We have to try things. And sometimes it turns out that that's not the answer, right? Maybe you, you take a break from social media. And in fact, it makes you miserable. And that's fine. Right. Then you know, right? You have the information and then you can make a decision. Of course, it's also the case that we can't try everything in life. Uh, life is short and we might not have resources. Um, but the second best thing is we can learn from other people's experiences as well. Yeah. And I think, and maybe this is obvious, but I think it's not just the breaks, but it's the reflection in the breaks and then it's action out of the breaks, right? Like we can't just take breaks and then come back to a bad system all the time and try and like there needs to be agency in whatever we do. And I, and I guess, you know, I see this in so many different realms of life, but I guess I just want to make sure that is something I'm sure you would agree with as well. Yes, absolutely. And the breaks or the changes, then when you go back to whatever you were doing before, you're able to see your reality better. Right. So you're able to see the good things more and that's good because that will bring you joy, but you're also able to see the bad things more and that's good because then you can act to change. Just want to make note that this was written with Cass Sunstein, who is you know a legal scholar among many many other things. And I, I just curious, like what what that collaboration was like for the two of you, or what you know what his insights outside of the realm of psychology or neuroscience brought into this, I think, really important book. 
Yeah, so Cassie and I have been working together for more than a decade, um, and it's one of the most fun and productive collaborations that I've had. So we already did quite a few studies together and op-eds together, um, and so writing this book was was really great. And what's um, I think what's specifically nice about Cass and I working together is that we have both specific expertise that don't overlap and then and then a lot of interests that do overlap. So mm. um, I come from neuroscience um, and originally and um, Cass comes from, um, you know, he's a legal scholar, but he's also um, a policymaker. So he was on the Obama administration. He was also working um, under Biden. Um, and so he has that. And then we both have an interest and knowledge in psychology and behavioral economics. So it really, I think, was a nice uh, combination. And in fact, you know, we talk, we have a whole chapter about creativity. Um, and one of the things that we mentioned there is that some of the best um, creative and innovative idea actually come when you're trying to solve a problem in one domain, but you're taking the solution from a totally different domain. Mm. You see this often when people are actually trying to solve technology problems and they're inspired by biology. Yeah. In fact, a lot of the AI today um, was inspired from, from neuroscience, from how the brain works. That's just one example. Um, and I think it's because the if you, uh, you have a certain expertise, but then you interact, engage, and learn from a different domain, that actually reduces habituation, right? Again, things are kind of novel. Um, and we actually, there's another kind of interesting uh, thing that we talked about in the, in the chapter, which is it turns out that people who dishabituate slower tend to be more creative on average. Mm. Um, and we think this is because uh, people who don't habituate as fast, they kind of have a lot of information in their mind that kind of stuck there, right? They have the noises and the images and the knowledge. And a lot of times that could be very distracting. But once in a while, this kind of information that seems maybe it's mundane, maybe it's not really important, but it's there for a while, is then combined with some other piece of knowledge or, you know, to create a mishmash that creates something completely new and unexpected an unexpected combination that can lead to innovation and creativity. And this is something that could be structured, that could be manufactured by just creating these um, changes. And these changes can be, you go ahead and kind of go and, and learn something completely new, take a course in something that's completely out of your domain. But there's also some interesting studies showing that if you just change your environment, that helps a lot, meaning just you work in your office, but mm. then you go ahead and, and take a, a break and go for a walk or work in a coffee place and then come back and work in your office. So it turns out that these things also can enhance creativity because what they do is also cause you to dishabituate. So I think um, going back to your question about um, collaboration, um, I think when you have two people who have different backgrounds, different knowledge, they can often cause each other to dishabituate, to, mm. think, to see things new, right? They can, like, you know, Cass can see what I've known for a very long time about how brain works and stuff, but for him it's new, so he might think about it in a different way and make connections that perhaps I haven't. Mm. 
It's been such a wonderful pleasure to be joined by Tali Sherritt, cognitive neuroscientist at MIT and University College London, also co-author of the book we discussed today, Look Again, The Power of Noticing What Was Always There. Tali, thank you so much. This was a really interesting and important conversation. We appreciate the time. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can stay connected to Life Examined in a whole bunch of different ways. Make sure to catch the midweek reset every Wednesday. You can also join our Facebook group. And you can join me and connect with me directly online on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion, where you'll find weekly reels and a whole lot more. Thanks again for joining us on Life Examined. Take care.